Luke uh, 22. Uh, please turn there. And if you're new to South Beach Church or visiting, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, okay, since 1942, okay? It is nuts, and it, I'm, I, I kid a little bit, like a lot bit, but we've been in, for over two years, we started back in 2016 in the month of November, and now it's 2019, and we're almost there, though, we're almost finished. Matter of fact, chronologically, we are in the last two days, maybe the last one day of Jesus Christ's life, okay? He lived three years on the earth in his ministry period, age 30 to 33, and then he was crucified, and here, in today's text, we have the Last Supper, Okay, the final supper, the final Passover Seder that Jesus would experience with his disciples before that fateful night where he would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and then falsely tried six different trials he would undergo and then he would be crucified by Pontius Pilate on Friday morning. And he would be buried on Friday afternoon and stay in the tomb on Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday they would go to the tomb and look for his body to finish the burial processes and the tomb would be rolled away, the stone, and no body would be there and Jesus then would have been resurrected from the dead. So that's where we are chronologically and yet the disciples don't know what's to come. They just know they've been with Jesus for three years and they super love him. He's been amazing. And yet Jesus now has a fervency. We're gonna see that word a couple times. He has a desire within his heart to fulfill all things. And he's led them to Jerusalem against all good judgment. They've counseled him. I don't know if we should go to Jerusalem right now, Jesus. You're kind of a wanted man. You're kind of a hot topic. You've kind of infuriated the religious sin sniffers, the spiritual police, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They don't like you. You're making them look bad and taking away their job. And really what Jesus does best is he makes us all look bad. Okay. In order to get near be laid bare spiritually, and so instead they said, "You know what we should do with Jesus? Let's just kill this guy." So we just kill. It's pretty aggressive. Pretty aggressive for some spiritual religious leaders. And Jesus here is in full control of what's going on. And my heart and my prayer is that those of you here today that know Jesus already, He's your Lord, your Savior, your King that you would just sink deeper into who he is and what he's doing, and you would be protected. Those of you who don't yet know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you haven't made room in him in your heart, maybe you're an intellectual, you've seen this and weighed the evidence, and you're not a bad person, at least by your own estimation, but you would see Jesus and say, I want him. I want to be near him. I need him in your heart of hearts. And you would reach out to Jesus and be saved today. That's his heart and his intention. Let's just read beginning in verse 7. This is where we ended two weeks ago. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And so they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city... A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Men didn't carry pitchers of water back then. Follow him into the house which he enters. That's going to be the sign to look for. And then you shall say to the master of the house, <clears throat> the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room there. Make ready. Verse 13. So they went and they found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. This is where we studied two weeks ago as Jesus now enters into this final day of his life. And I love how even in his final day of his life, he knows exactly what's going on. He's calling the shots. And he tells them, this is the day that the Passover, I've got it circled in my Bible, must be killed. 
There's no options. This is the day, the, and when it speaks of the Passover, it's speaking of the lamb. Not just one lamb. You know that in Jerusalem, that there would be one lamb for every 10 people in every family. And there was around 2 or 3 million people in Jerusalem at this time. The Bible tells us in Josephus, the historian records also, that the blood of the lambs would flow through Jerusalem during this time, all the way down the Kidron Valley. It was gnarly, at least in our estimation. In those days, when animal sacrifice was a normal thing, this was to be expected. And Jesus says, I am the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. All of this is picturing who Jesus is. He is that lamb, the Passover lamb. So when it says that it must happen at this time, I need you to understand what Jesus is referring to. A lot of people say that they like Jesus. Anybody here agree you like Jesus? A lot of people said they like his teachings. You can go on secular campuses and say, what, you know, what, what do, you, do you agree with Jesus' teachings? Oh, yeah, turn the cheek, you know, and love your neighbor, you know, and serve, and all this, you know, the teachings of Jesus. And I love the teachings of Jesus, too, and so should you. But did you know it's not the teachings of Jesus that will save you? You actually can't be saved through the teachings of Jesus. You can only be saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not so much what he said that will save a person. It's what he did. This is a big deal because it's hard to find somebody who can find anything against what he said. Most people have nothing wrong with what he said. And yet the, the chasm, the difference is when Jesus says, no, no, I didn't, I didn't just say a bunch of cool stuff. I came to die because I'm a rescuer, not just a teacher. Oh, I am a teacher, but I am a rescuer. I am the savior. And Jesus is an excellent savior, and you all are excellent sinners. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> like, how you doing on, how you doing on your job description? Like, nailed it, you know. <laughs> Good job. Jesus comes along, and he does what only he can do. You can't take Jesus' teachings and apply them to your life and not be a sinner. You'll just be a sinner that knows teachings. You must apply belief, listen, faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says it this way. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, you shall be saved. It, it, it's so simple. It's so simple. You weigh the evidence. You look at his life. You see his teachings. Good job. Good job. He died, though. He came to die. The Passover lamb must be slain now. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and those who believe in that, the power of the resurrection, will find themselves saved. Jesus, he is the greatest teacher. He is the greatest instructor. He is the greatest leader ever. Okay, but he's more than that. He is a rescuer, a savior. And what happens is, is people want to argue with good and bad and morals and right and wrong and, and can I do this and where's the line and well if I become a Christian how close can I get to this line and do I have to give that substance up and do I have to have this lifestyle change do I and all these things horizontally do it listen I'm just going to say it none of that matters okay until you meet Jesus vertically until you give your life to him and accept his offering to you, none of that other stuff matters. And once Jesus lives inside of your heart and you're born again, your desires change. If you're a Christian here, you've seen this happen. Your desires change. You knew right and wrong. Everybody knows right and wrong. It's not that hard. Okay, we have a conscience built within us. We know right and wrong. But when you're born again, 
your life is changed from the inside out. This is what Jesus is doing. I don't want you to miss that here. And so when it says, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Again, unleavened bread would speak to that time in Egypt where they would bake bread without leaven. It's unleavened. Leaven speaking of sin. And they would remove all of the impurities from their life. And then the Passover lamb would be slain there in Egypt 1,500 years earlier. They're celebrating the same festival now that they celebrated then. And the Passover lamb would be slain in Egypt, which would allow then the death angel to pass over their homes. He would see blood applied to the top of their doorpost and to the sides of their doorpost and to the threshold. This is what they were instructed to do there in Egypt with the hyssop and the bowl of fresh lamb's blood. It's totally wacky, totally gross, but all of it. Speaking of Jesus, by the way, that's a perfect cross if you haven't noticed the blood here and the blood there, all of it foreshadowing. And when you give your life to Jesus, he delivers us from our leavenness, from our impurities, from our sins, our evil. He takes care of that. And that death angel, if you would, would pass over us. All of this happens. Let me just make a few practical observations here. It says in verse 8 that he sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Now, if you guys know anything about the Bible, Peter and John are kind of bigwigs, right? They're the bigwigs. Okay, Peter, James, and John, they're the three amigos. And now they're going to go prepare a place for everyone else to eat. And you can imagine if they get tagged with this responsibility, hey, I want you guys to go get dinner ready for everyone. The other Peter, James, and... The, the, <laughs> Oh, 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 me? Oh. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tasked with menial things, and I have to check my pride at the door and realize, you know, I just got just to gotta do this. And can I just say something? Here's how it works. James and Peter and John, okay, right here it's John and Peter. Did you know that these two men would be used later on to minister to, to impact, and to reach billions of people? Is billion a lot or a little to you? I mean, that's kind of a, to me it's a lot. I don't know what you guys do for a living. That's a lot, billions of people and yet to get there they had to be faithful in the little things jesus said i wonder if it was a test by the way it's all a test it's all a test and jesus said hey why don't you guys go get the meal ready on it i was hoping you hoping you'd ask me you know and they they go do this i'm not sure what their attitude was i just know what my attitude is when i'm tasked with chores menial things And can I just say now, doing this, walking with Jesus now since age 20 when I gave my life to Jesus, I'm 40 now, I know I only look like I'm 22, I know, I know. (laughs) I, I look back on the little chores that God has tasked me with, with such joy. I'm so thankful for the things I've been able to just do, pick up, just help and serve. Now, at the time, I can tell you I didn't have a great attitude every single time, okay? Whining, kicking, screaming, complaining, moaning, all internally, of course. That's where the gray hair came from. And can I just exhort you? Jesus said, if you're faithful with little things, you'll be put over bigger things. It's just the principle. There are people right now teaching Sunday school, which could be looked at as a little thing. My wife's up in the five to seven-year-old room, and Adam Durkin's in the eight to ten-year-old room. I've got two boys up there and a girl over there, and there's Diane's in the three to four-year-old room, and Melissa Gifford's in the zero to two-year-old room. And there are the Sunday school, man. I'm so thankful for them. And you might even think to yourself, man, I would never do Sunday school. That's for, that's for the kids. Can I just say, whatever it is, there's people in the kitchen right now, there's people going to the jail after this service, and there's people ministering, there's people that set up early for Celebrate Recovery on Tuesdays, there's people that do events, there's things that you could do, and yet in your pride, you have to accept whatever it is that needs to be done, especially if you're, I don't want to 
exclude one group, but if you're a young person here, can I just encourage you to just be a servant of all? Okay, an old person too, for sure. Start serving people. Look for opportunities to serve. Ephesians 2.10 says something incredible. It says that God has foreordained good works for you to walk in. There's already good things that God has foreordained for you to be a part of. It actually has your DNA written on it, and it won't get done right if you don't show up to the table. I don't know if these guys knew that God was going to use them to write parts of the New Testament. John would write John. He would write Revelation, which we're studying next. He would write 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Peter would write 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Peter would be given the keys. The key. All this crazy stuff, and it's just a simple observation that they had to swallow their pride, possibly, and do what Jesus said to do. Last November, I was at a real-life uh, retreat in Corvallis, I think it was Corvallis, we were in Sun River, uh, for OSU, and there's about 200 students there, and, and one, one student asked me, he said, hey, Luke, if you could tell your 20-year-old self, he actually said it this way, if you could give your 20-year-old self one book to read, what would it be? I said, you know what, that's a good question. I said, I, I don't really have the book, you know, that one self-help book or the guidebook. Well, what I would tell my 20-year-old self is, is to settle in and to trust the Lord in every little thing. He's going to have his way, and it's going to be legit. Just do saying this, and your schedule says that, and your spouse is over here. Man, this is whatever. Or you could say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful because I want to do what is unto the Lord. I just see this simple observation. Hopefully it makes sense to you guys. It says that he asked them to prepare. Look at verse 9. They asked where to go, and he said that in verse 10, that you will have entered the city. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher. Follow him in the house which he enters. And then in verse 11, say to that master, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. Can I just make this additional observation? This would be a minor miracle if there is such a thing. Okay, you're going to go into the city, like, all right, just find a guy with a pitcher of water. <laughs> you know, oh, Dude, that guy's got a pitcher of water over there. <laughs> no way. Let's follow him into his house and see how that goes. You know, he just went up the stairs. Just say, get on him. You know, and they're right behind him in the kitchen. He's like, oh. He's like, uh, where's the guest room? We're about to eat crazy i had a vision you guys would be here so i don't know how it all worked out i don't know commentators like to fill in the blanks like well obviously evidently jesus knew the guy and sent him a text message you know like we're coming to your house bro i'm sending i'm sending my homies you know i don't this, we don't know that we don't know that i don't really care how it all happened all i know is when god guides and directs he puts those instructions on your heart dude you got to just get after it and I, I, I stand here now, 20 years into this thing, uh, having missed opportunities to co-op with the Lord. And I also stand up here having uh, dozens and hundreds of stories where I decided just, that doesn't make any sense. But I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm just going to chase this rabbit, see if I catch it. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to see where this thing goes. And God has blessed me and proved himself faithful. I call it a minor miracle because there's really no such thing. A miracle is a miracle. And God will guide your steps and order your ways if you would let him. I, I like to call this also progressive revelation. He says, go into the city. That's the first step. You'll see a man with a water pitcher. That's the second step. You'll follow him up the stairs. That's the third step. You're going to ask him for a spot to eat. That's the fourth step. There'll be a spot. That's the fifth step. It's all going to, it's progressive revelation. And if you're like me, you kind of want to know where this whole thing's going, don't you? Don't you want to know if you're a young person, who am I going to marry? And if you're a career person, how, where's my career going to go? And if you're a ministry person, how's this ministry going to go? And oftentimes, God doesn't tell you. He just tells you to do the next thing. And he will be faithful. 
to reveal it. And the reason he doesn't tell you everything that's going to happen in your life is because two things might happen. Number one, when he shows you what the future holds, you might bail. You know what I'm saying? He shows you what he's going to do. You're like, phew, I'm out of here. <laughs> or you might get overly aggressive and try and fast track it and miss some development opportunities. And anyways, all of this is right there in the text. Very simple for you guys to, to make observation. Look at verse 13. So they went and they found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Luke, who writes this, is a historian. He's a doctor. He's an author. He's a servant. And he concludes, you know what's kind of important? Verse 13, I got to put that there. It was just as he said. It was just the way he said. And I've already waxed eloquently telling you about the Lord's faithfulness and your obedience. But did you know that God's word is full of promises and directives? And whatever he said will be just as he said it. Take this to the bank, by the way. The warnings, the promises. The, the blessings and the burdens. Everything in this book that he says, it will be exactly as he said it would be. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time at all, you can say, oh yeah, for sure. Even in my rebelliousness, my foolishness, my, my rejection of what he says. You ever looked at the Bible and says, I'm not sure if I like that. <laughs> yeah, God's <laughs> like, I didn't ask for your opinion. This isn't Costco, you know. God said it, that settles it. Remember, I used to say God settled, said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's settled whether you believe it or not. You know, and you're just like me, you're just, you know, rebellious and whatever the case is. I would just say settle into what God, it's, it's so fun when you realize if God said it, that settles it. It's just, it's going to happen. How, how, where? I don't know how. I don't know when. It's going to though. The promises of God, the Bible says, are yes and amen in Jesus. It's good to go. Take it to the bank. So if you're looking where to found your life and how to navigate your future, find out what the Bible says. I'm not even messing with you. It is a sure thing. It has not failed yet. You know, it's so fun. I, I mentioned Noah, my son, uh, my 11-year-old. He's a good kid. He's a good kid. But something happened on Friday. He, he, he got near to the Lord like he's never been before. And, and all day Saturday, I, he, was just, he was different. And, and this morning, he was different. It's, we, it's weird. He's different. He's, he's a good kid. But I, th I think, I think something, he got touched by the Holy Spirit. And so yesterday, it was so funny. I got up at uh, 6 or 7, I can't remember. And I, I came down the stairs, and he was making coffee in the kitchen. <laughs> he was making my coffee. And he was pouring the water. You know, we do pour-overs, you know. And he'd, he'd poured it, and he, and he had another cup going. He was going to take the leftovers. And, and I was like, what the heck is going on here? You know, you're, you're anointed, son, you know. <laughs> and so, so I, yeah, I made the coffee and, you know, put some cream in his. And he sat down, and, and he just, he's like, Dad, what? And he grabbed, his, he grabbed a, one of those new Gideon Bibles, you know, the orange ones. He couldn't find his other Bible. And, 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 and he sat down. And he's like, Dad, what's that one, that one, where's that one smart stuff book, the smart stuff book? And I said, Proverbs, Proverbs. The smart stuff book. And he couldn't find it. And I said, okay, read, read Proverbs. And so he got to Proverbs 16. And I'm not even kidding you. I was sitting there reading uh, portions of scripture uh, elsewhere. And he was reading Proverbs 16. He's across the, the living room there. And he just he kept asking, what, what, is this, what does righteousness mean? And what does meddling mean? What does enticing mean? All these big, what does transgression mean? And, and then he got to verse 7 of chapter 16 where it says, hey, Dad, listen to this. Listen to this. When a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are made to be at peace with him. And he was sitting over there with his coffee and his Bible was like, ah, you know. 
And I was like, what the heck, dude? You know, I took a picture. I was like, you got to write this down, you know? What's happening? He's a good kid, but something happened. And last night I was tucking him in. Last night I was tucking him in. He's like, Dad, remember that verse? And he brought it back up again. Remember that verse? And it was so funny. His commentary, he's like, I don't, I don't really think I have any enemies yet, you know, but, uh, you know. <laughs> he knows his dad does. He knows his dad has plenty. And my point is, like in verse 13, they went and they found it just as he had said to them. And my, my question is, is, have you found God's word to be so sweet, so true? I hope you have. If you're a believer here, if the Holy Spirit's touched you, okay, you wake up in the morning and you, you make your coffee and you just want to read the smart book, you know, the Proverbs or whatever. <laughs> Chapter 18 tomorrow is where we'll be reading. Proverbs 18, the 18th. And, and you just, God's word is sweet to you. It's sweeter than honeycomb, the Bible says. And you love it. Even those parts that you're like, man, I'm not sure what that means. There's confusing parts in here. There, there's hard parts. There's, there's difficult things. And yet if you have kids right now, you're dedicated to their well-being. And everything I impose upon my three kids may be hard or confusing to them, but it's good. It really is. Even more so, 100 million times more, God's word for you, even in your flesh. You're like, I don't like that. I don't understand that. I don't know what that means. Just settle in. It's good. Well, here's what happens next. I want you guys to lean in now. That was kind of the run-up. In verses 14 through 23 is what we're going to do for the rest of the, the 20 minutes we have together. Less than 20 minutes, 15 minutes. This is what's called the Last Supper. The Passover Seder. Seder literally, literally means order. This meal had been going on for 1,500 years. Every year, Jewish families would get together and have this Passover Seder. And Jesus says, now we're going to do this together. And the part I want you to understand is that Jesus gathered, like always, except this year was different. This one, this one, this one was different. And there's such order, I'm going to read it to you in just a minute, just for fun, if I have time, if I get there. There's an order that hasn't deviated for millennials, millenniums, however it looks, for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And now Jesus goes through the same order, and yet he changes it. <laughs> when he takes the bread and he breaks and he says, take, eat, this is and there's a whole thing you're supposed to say. They do this every, he says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And they're like, whoa, dude, you can't just ad-lib this dinner, bro. You can't just change it up. And he takes the cup. There were four glasses of wine that they would ceremonially partake of, that they would sip and then pass around. And on the third cup, Jesus takes that cup and says, take and drink. This is the new covenant promise. This is the new testament in my blood which is shed for many. They're like, whoa, no one's ever said that. These four cups of wine represented four different verses in the book of Deuteronomy describing their deliverance from Egypt, that they were rescued, that they were sanctified, that they were protected, that they were provided for. They have real meaning of what happened in Egypt. And Jesus says, all of that's me. I am the Passover lamb. Do not miss this. And he gave the bread and he gave the cup. And he took the order, the shadows. The Bible says that all the shadows, types, and pictures of the Old Testament are all just that, shadows, types, and pictures of the real thing, which is the substance of Jesus Christ. Now, again, we sit here with a little more information, don't we? This was on Thursday night, okay, where they would gather together. Jesus would be killed the next day. None of this would make total sense until Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead. None of this would make total sense until those 40 days where Jesus was alive and taught the other disciples and other people what was going on. Now, 2,000 years later, we're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. 
with modern science and technology and evidence and history and the spirit and the church and everything. This is crazy. This is crazy. This is that Seder that changes all Seders, that changes all Passovers, that changes all past, that changes everything. And it's happened to me in my life, and I hope it's happened to you in your life, and I hope you see Jesus differently in this particular Seder. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include the Last Supper. Did you know that not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the birth of Jesus? Like, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Like, when's your birthday? I don't even know, you know. They don't even include the birthday. Some of the gospel writers don't include all the stories or all the miracles. I like the stories. I like the miracles. I like the birth of Jesus. All of them, though, include the Passover and the death of Jesus. Don't you guys love Christmas? It's so cool. The birth of Jesus. But did you know that every single Sunday at South Beach Church, we take communion? Every single Sunday. Okay? Because it revolves around the death of Jesus. I'm so glad Jesus was born, for sure. But more celebrated than his birth is his death. He died for you. He died for me. He died in our place. As a matter of fact, there's a song that just came out recently that says that this is how we fight our battles at the table. The table of communion. And it's in his death that we find life and victory, hope and strength. Look at what it says in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. First thing I would note is that all 12 are there. Even Judas Iscariot, who we learned about two weeks ago, is the betrayer. He's invited to the table as well. I don't know how you guys have meals with your friends. When I have meals with my friends, it's usually pretty intimate. It's a family thing. I think it's important that you realize that about the Passover Seder. It's not some religious custom. When you come and take communion here in just a few minutes, that Jesus really wants to commune with you. It's a meal. If you eat with people, and these days, I actually went to a Seder in Israel on the ground at Abraham's tent there above the Dead Sea years ago, and we put on these robes, and we laid down on the ground and leaned against these tables and took some pita bread and dipped it in the hummus, you know, and how you doing, you know, really intimate setting, and that's how it was. The whole uh, Da Vinci painting of the, the Last Supper, eh, that's not how it looked. These guys were there together. I want you to see that every time you take communion from now on, I want you to see it as an intimate time, a meal that you're sharing with the Lord, that he invites you in. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12. They were with him. Verse 15, and then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That verse is loaded. It's such a weird, he uses some words here that are actually used synonymously in the text in scriptures. When it says fervently desired, those words are also used for other things, lustful things, where people wanted things so badly, and Jesus here says, you know what I want so badly? This meal. It's a holy desire. Before I suffer, Jesus is so fired up. These guys, they've been through so many satyrs, and Jesus is like, this is it. This is the one. And they're like, oh, okay, Jesus, calm down, bro. Calm down. Like, you know it's unleavened bread. It doesn't even taste that good, bro. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm serious. And Jesus says, oh, no, this is the big deal. This is the big deal. 1,500 years. I'll just give you the rundown. There would be a blessing uh, said over the first of four cups of wine. Uh, the host would then wash his hands. And then they would take a stack of matzo bread, three uh, loaves of matzo bread, and they would take the middle one out, break it in half, okay? This is what they did for 1,500 years, and they would hide a piece of it. In, in the room and leave the other one there, broken and hidden. Okay? They did this for 1,500 years. And then throughout the Seder, a child, the children would go look for the hidden piece of bread. And once they found the hidden piece of bread, they would bring it back to the table and it'd be broken and served in that way. 
And Jesus is now going to eventually take that hidden piece, that broken piece, found by the children of God. Jesus himself would be broken and hidden in the tomb, and he would be dispersed to all who would receive him, and he would say, this, this is my body, broken for you. He would give thanks, he would break it and give. This is, oh, by the way, the story of Jesus in his life, he would be blessed and broken and given to mankind. The Passover story would be told after the bread is hidden. Uh, there would be a second cup of wine. Everyone would then wash their hands. This is where Jesus would wash the disciples' feet in John 13. Some herbs would be eaten, or eaten bitter herbs, reminding them of the suffering in uh, Egypt. They would then uh, enjoy the main meal, which would be roasted lamb. Uh, some commentators believe that there was actually no lamb at this meal, that they didn't have the preparations in time. I'm not sure if that was true or not. The obvious reason would be that Jesus is the lamb. Uh, after the main meal, there would be a blessing, and then the broken half of matzah that had been hidden would be brought back, and then the third cup of wine, and Jesus would take that and pray and offer it. After that, in normal seders, a child, if there was one present, there wasn't any here, would open the door ceremonially and say, is Elijah here? They're looking for the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And then Psalm 13 would be read, Psalm 113 and Psalm 118. And then the, finally, this is the fourth cup of wine, which Jesus doesn't ever take. According to the dinner, he says at the very end, I will not partake of this again until you come into the kingdom of heaven. This is it. This is the final there will be another meal to come. The Bible declares in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until then, Jesus has stopped. He's abstained, and we don't know exactly what that means. In heaven, there won't be necessity of food like we know, but the celebration. And Jesus says, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. Now, again, let's just talk about desires real quick. This Passover would lead to great suffering. Jesus would be marred uh, more than any other man. He would suffer more than any other human could imagine. And yet Jesus had a desire to be with his disciples in this way. If you're a Christian here this morning, your desires have been radically changed, haven't they? There were days I lived, I had no desire to be at church, no desire to be with you guys, for sure, for sure. And then Jesus came in and changed my life. And all of a sudden my want to's are different. My desires are different. I look forward to studying God's word. I look forward to praying with people. I look forward to knowing your story. I look forward to being a part of this kingdom. And I'll tell you what, if that, had, that desire hasn't been born in you yet, ask Jesus to change your desires today. Verse 17, or verse 16, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is my last Passover. Now, mind you again, these guys probably were just listening and nodding like, okay, okay. Never, you're not going to, okay, just go with it, you know, just do whatever he says, I'm not quite sure. It would make more sense later to them uh, after the resurrection. Verse 18 or verse 17, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That would be, I think, the second cup of wine. It possibly was the first. He'll take another cup in a minute. I just have that word yourselves circled. And this is on you. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And if you're not a Christian here, you're not comfortable yet, you shouldn't take communion. Okay, this is between you and Jesus. You should celebrate what he did for you. And, and, and I'll never take your communion for you. I just can't do it. It's yourself. This is for you. Okay, if anybody ever tries to chew your communion for you, you know, tell them not to do that. That's my communion. Back off. It's got to be yours. It's got to be yours. You hear, you hear that word in churches, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I take communion three times on a Sunday. Okay, all three services. 
and I draw near to the Lord in that communion, and I find myself blessed by him. He says, take and divide it among yourselves. Verse 18, for I say to you, I will not drink of the cup again. Verse 19, and he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to him, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, as he said this in verse 19, he actually shouldn't have said that. This is what he should have said. When the bread was lifted up at Passover, the head of the meal would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. That would be the phrase that they rehearsed. And Jesus now, they expect him to say the same thing. I am the bread of life. This is, I, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. They didn't really understand how broken Jesus' body would be. Shortly after this, Jesus would be beaten with clubs and rods. He would have his beard pulled out of his face, and he would be spit on. They would take a crown of thorns, and they would press it into his skull, into his forehead, and blood would pour down his eyeballs. They would take him out to the whipping post and give him 39 lashings. And these lashings were designed, a cat of nine tails with leather ribbons and bones and glass and metal in the tips. And they would lodge into your skin. And when you pulled back, it would pull the skin with it and remove the skin from your body. And they would do this on your hind legs and on your back and on your rib cages. Historians tell us that in some instances they were so savage in this whipping that they would actually grab rib bones and pull them out of the victims and throw them exposing the flesh all the way down to the organs jesus would then have to carry his cross to golgotha where he would be tortured and nailed to a tree jesus is saying this is my body broken for you take eat very sanitized, very, very easy to do in that setting. Jesus knew this is going to cost me everything. And he did it because he, he fervently desired. He desired with fervency to be with these guys and to have this meal. This is why he came. It wasn't just his teachings. If Jesus could have came on earth and lived for three years and gave a bunch of good teachings and just raptured up, I'd be fine with that. And then it's up to you and to me to figure it out. But instead, he gave great teachings. And then he said, now I'm going to go die for you guys. Because my teachings are true. But your sin is too great. Your sin must be paid for. I will pay for the sins of mankind. For Luke Frechette's sins. For your sins. For Peter, who took the bread from him, sins. For Judas, who took the bread from him, sins. For our sins. Jesus, knowing the deliverance that comes only through him. Verse 20, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, that's a promise, in my blood which is shed for you. The Gospel of Mark says, which is shed for many. And let me just say this. Did you know the blood of Jesus is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. I'm going to use a a term that makes sense to me, but it is not efficient for the sins of the whole world because not everybody will participate. He died for all. But unless you take the cup and take the cup, 
and the bread, unless you take them, not, not just them as we do today, but if you don't look at Jesus on the cross and you don't look at his blood spilled for you and you don't incorporate that into your holiness, your righteousness, if that's not your story, you are left on your own. You are still in your sins, which are many. And Jesus here did this for you. He did this for me. The blood is shed for all of us. Look at verse 21. This is where the meal gets weird. We only got two more verses and we're done. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. <laughs> Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus is like saying, take it, eat, you know, and all of a sudden everyone's like leaning on the table. And he's like, but there is one here who's going to betray me and his hands are on the table. You know, what the heck, dude? And evidently, the other gospel writers fill in the blanks like everybody adjusted except Judas. Judas looks at him. And Judas asks him, is it me? He's like, it's you. It's you. Here's the crazy response, though. Look at this, though. Verse 22. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus says, this is all scriptural, I must be betrayed. I've got to die tonight. And it's got to be by somebody who's going to betray me. But, but woe to that man. Look at verse 23. And we're going to start there next week. And I've got some more thoughts, so don't, don't tune out yet. But it says, then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. I like these. This, at this time, you ever been to a meal before where someone says so, something super awkward? Okay, that just happened right here. Like right here, Jesus just like breaks a glass. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, one of you guys are going to betray me. Like, What? And their response, everyone, it's so cool. And I wonder why this is, because in the next, chap- the next couple of verses, you can read it later today. In the next couple of chapters, they begin to argue about who's the greatest. But, but here, they all wonder if it's them. They say, Lord, oh no, one, one of us is going to betray you. And instantly, they all think, oh, it's me. <laughs> oh, crud, it's me. And they all whip their hands off the table, you know. And Judas, though, you guys know, already had 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. He'd already made a deal with the Pharisees. The wheels were in motion. He knew it was him. I find it interesting that nobody else knew it was him. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't sitting in the corner with his, you know, collar up and his hood on, you know, <laughs> smoking a stogie, like, yeah, you know. Like, they just thought he was a good guy, you know. A little mean, but anyways. And Jesus here, yet I find grace and mercy that Jesus even here is giving him, in my opinion, an out, an opportunity. Okay, you can't pin the blame on the scriptures or prophecy or Jesus. Judas had just had his feet washed by Jesus, love and enduring, an outreach from Jesus. And yet here's the problem. I'm going to have Ryan come up right now, and I've got some more stuff to say, but you're going to have to come next week. Here's the problem. We, we don't know what motivated Judas. Most assume for a myriad of reasons, he was disappointed. He was disappointed. He didn't want Jesus to die. It didn't make sense to him. He'd given his life to him. Judas was a kind of an educated guy. He wanted to be successful. He was from Judea. Everyone else was from Galilee. You know, He had a, an education, and he knew how to handle money. And Jesus says, I'm going, I'm going to die. He's like, what? And maybe Judas, in his disappointment, said, well, I'm going to at least get paid. Okay? I'm going to at least figure it out. 
And in that mindset, he betrayed Jesus. And let me simply put it this way. Jesus came to die for your sins and to take over your life and to have you live for the things of heaven, not just the things of earth. That's what he came to do. And if you don't understand that in your heart of hearts and you don't believe that that's good in your deepest emotions, you're, you're going to make a critical error like Judas. And you're going to push away Jesus. You're going to say, ah, I don't want anything to do with that. And yet Jesus would still go to the cross for you. He would still endure your sin for you. He loves you. Peter would also betray Jesus. Thomas would doubt Jesus. The, the, the 12 would abandon Jesus. And yet Jesus died for them. And here's the cool thing. He asks us to remember him. To do this in remembrance of him. When we come to the table and we take the cup and we take the bread, we remember what he's done. That's what we do. We remember. He's delivered us from our own Egypt. He's taken care of the leaven, the sin. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll talk about this next week. He says, not just remember the past, but look at your, your present. He says, inspect yourself. How are you doing? What's going on right now? What, what battles are you fighting right now? Man, we got battles. And he says, bring those to the table. Confess those sins, man. Inspect yourself here. Don't just look back, but look in right now, today. When you take that cup, don't, don't just gloss over your sin that you're dealing with right now. The, the wickedness and the perversion, the selfishness and the anger and the vile. Yesterday, my son Noah was reading the Proverbs. He said, Dad, what does perverseness mean? I said, it just means all kinds of evil. Anything other than the Lord. Repent of that today. You got stuff. I got stuff. Don't pretend you don't and when you come to the cup you look back and you look in and you also listen you look forward first corinthians chapter 11 gives us the instructions for the lord's supper and it says and you proclaim the lord's death until he returns you know he's coming back you can live with hope today what's going on in your marriage what's going on in your life what's going on in the future do you know the future i i do jesus is gonna come back again he's building his kingdom this is what he's doing. He's raising up spiritual people that would heal other people. 10 out of 10 people die. And then comes the afterlife. Moses said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might be full of wisdom. Jesus came and died so we could live right and die well. This is the victory over sin and death. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes before we take communion. Jesus, we are going to now remember you and celebrate the Lord's table. Lord, we'll do this again next week. We'll, we'll get some more stuff and we'll learn more. But right now, in Jesus' name, as we come to the table and as we take the cup and take the bread, Lord, we choose in our hearts and in our minds to remember that they speak of you. Lord, of your sacrifice for us, your goodness, your love, Lord, of the way, the only way, the truth and life that we can get to heaven. It's through you. It's not through us. And before we take communion, I, I hope that you've heard God's love for you. Before we take communion, if you, would, if you would make this personal, Jesus said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. He wants you to take communion today. But he wants you to know that it's for you. It's not just for South Beach Church. It's not just for the church. It's not just for other people. It is for you. It's got your name on it. Your sins. And if you're here this morning and you would say, I want to take communion, I want to take it for myself, 
I want to remember the past. I want to look in. I want to look forward. I want to do that right now. Would you just nod your head forward? Nod your, maybe slip your hand up in the back, wherever you're at. Just say, yeah, I want to do that for me. I want, I want to take communion. I want to believe it for me. I want to be at the table with Jesus. I want to do this for me. And I see hands up. I see anybody who joined these. I see three or four hands up. Anybody, five, six, seven. Anybody else would join these in Jesus' name? Amen. I see hands up going up. Join these. Jesus did this for you. Fathers, we come to the table. You can put your hands down. As we come to the table, we do so, Lord, remembering you, proclaiming your death until you return, applying the blood to the doorposts of our homes and hearts that you might, Lord, forgive us and lead us forward. We thank you, God, for what you've done. Do more, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.